Andrea Elliott is the author of Invisible Child, Poverty, Survival, and Hope in an American City. It is just out now. She's joining us on Port Over today to talk about Dasani, Dasani's experience, and wait until you meet this little girl. She is extraordinary. This book is almost 600 pages, and it started as a five-piece series in the New York Times in 2013. Andrea, would you set the story up for folks who have not yet had a chance to meet Dasani? Thank you so much for having me, Miwa. I'm really, really excited to talk about Dasani and her story. I would start by saying that, yes, the book is long. um, And at the same time, I didn't intend for it to be as long as it was. What happened is that things kept happening, things that surprised me, things that stunned me. And the story revealed itself as her life progressed and I continued to follow it over these eight years. And what resulted was a book that is the same length as plenty of presidential biographies. And when I went back and forth with my editor about it, what we concluded is that Dasani's life is worth every bit as much. And that's the point. Her life is just as epic. It tells us just as much about America. And so there is a braiding of history and policy with her family's own narrative, which begins in real time when she's 11 and living without a home in a shelter in Brooklyn, crammed into one room with her nine family members, seven siblings and her mother and her stepfather, who she regards as her father. And it follows this family through all kinds of unexpected twists and turns as they try their best to stay together while surviving all of these systems that poor people must contend with, especially in a place like New York City or in other urban areas. Family is the ultimate system of survival for Dasani. And the book ends in 2021 in this this year. So it was nearly a, a decade, actually, that I've been in her, in her life and following her story. Can we talk about how you met Dasani and her mom, Chanel? Yeah, yes. So this all began on a sunny day in October of 2012, when I, as a reporter for the New York Times, was standing at the entrance of a homeless shelter in Fort Greene, Brooklyn. And I was there because I was trying to find my way into a really big story, which was the city's homeless crisis, which continues to this day. By then, there were more than 22,000 children in New York City's shelters and well over 80,000 experiencing some form of housing insecurity or homelessness during the school year. And this was in one of the most unequal cities in the United States, which is also one of the richest cities in the world. So to just give you a visual of how big a population of kids we're talking about, they wouldn't fit in Madison Square Garden. I was standing there in front of the shelter and I will never forget the first moment I saw Dasani's family. They were walking in single file, which is how I would later learn. They, they often walked because that's how you survive. You, you stay together, you show discipline, you show unity, you look after one another. At the front of the line was Chanel Dasani's mother and she was walking like a drill sergeant. And she gave me this kind of power stare. <laughs> she later explained to me that's, that's what you do. And the eight children, Dasani just stood out to me immediately. She wanted my attention. She wanted to talk. She just kept talking and everything that came out of her mouth, I wanted to write down. She struck me as a kind of quintessential New York City kid. And this cuts across class. It cuts across race, ethnicity, everything, politics, even. These kids are curious. They're tough. They're alert. They're interested in other people. The thing that set Dasani apart from most children, again, across the spectrum of class and race and ethnicity, across the spectrum of children, what really set her apart was her ability to articulate in a profound 
and moving and evocative way her own experience. She was so aware. She was so, so aware of the injustice of her life. And at the same time, she was reaching for more. And there's just this current of aspiration that runs through her family that goes back generations. And it's embedded in her very name. She was named after the bottled water that had come to Brooklyn right as gentrification was beginning to explode. And her mother, Chanel, was holding a bottle of Dasani water in her hand at the local bodega that was in Bed-Stuy, another neighborhood in Brooklyn, thinking who would pay for water? And just the sound of it to her, Dasani, you know, conjured this other life, much like the sound of the name Chanel conjured another life to Chanel's own mother. But the difference was that that was in the late 70s in a Brooklyn that was much more siloed, where it was rare to encounter a white person or a person of means. And Chanel's mother, Joni, saw that perfume in an ad in a glossy magazine, which was the closest you could get, whereas here it had arrived, the wealth had arrived. And so Dasani was growing up in the midst of this other world that she was exposed to, but that was not her own. Uh, it was just a few blocks away. She, she could step out of her shelter where she was living with her two parents and seven siblings crammed in one mouse-infested room. And within a block or two, be standing in front of townhouses that had been renovated and flipped for millions of dollars. And she could walk past these fancy ice cream stores where one scoop is $6 or these boutiques where people were buying $800 boots. She could see through the window into this other world that was not accessible to her except visually. And I think that that tension between what was her life and what could be her life was definitive for her and was always running through our conversations and just her daily routine even because it began with her going to her window every morning before her siblings woke up and sitting at the windowsill and looking at the Empire State Building. The Empire State Building, as New Yorkers will know, has this thing called the tower lights and it lights up in different colors. And that was so centering for Dasani. She just wanted to always see, is there something I'm missing? What, what is it today? Is it St. Patty's Day? What, what colors will this iconic building light up into? And the way she put it to me is it makes me feel like something's going on out there. And I think that it's that something that's at the heart of this book, that reaching for this something else, while at the same time managing what is. This is a book that belongs on the shelves with Evicted by Matthew Desmond and Alex Kotlowitz's books. There are no children here. And American Summer, Love and Death oh, yeah. in Chicago. And one of the things that becomes very, very clear as we follow Dasani and her siblings and her parents through the system is that the system doesn't work. And we as a culture and a society have decided that Poverty is much more about moral failings than it is about systemic failure. And the circumstances in which this family lives and does for a point leave the Auburn shelter, which is gruesome. And they find housing on Staten Island, far from family. The kids have to change schools again. And it becomes clear that part of ACS's mission here, at least in the city, is to separate families more than keep them together. And for Dasani and Chanel, 
family is the thing that is meant to keep everyone together. Yes. So I think the important thing to know about the relationship between systems and this family's life and all families in the sense is that they are not only deeply connected, but they are all drawing from human constructs. In other words, the systems are people. It's easy to forget it. The systems involve people on the ground every day who just by virtue of whatever their whims are, whatever their decision-making processes can save a family or destroy a family. It's a very delicate thing. It's a very powerful thing at the same time. In other words, a family like Dasani's, what you see again and again is small problems cascading into some kind of catastrophe. These are preventable problems. When I began my path with Dasani, she was in one system. She was in the DHS system, Department of Homeless Services. I thought at that time, I'm going to be writing about that system and about what it's like to be a homeless kid in New York City. What I learned over the near decade that I followed Dasani's life is that she was going to show me the story at every juncture and that it was going to change. We often talk about the homeless child or child poverty or school to prison pipeline. We talk about this in terms of pipelines, right? That if you start out one place, you end up in another. She actually showed me this by virtue of what she experienced and her family experience. We started out at DHS. As the story progresses, we're in a new system, ACS, the Administration for Children's Services, which is the child protection system. She becomes a foster kid. By the end of the book, her brother, Khalik, has been charged with murder. He's now in a different system, DOC, Department of Corrections. We've gone from DHS to ACS to DOC. And in each of these moments, you also see echoes of history for this family. You see that this has been experienced over and over and over again. And we like to talk about the experience of poverty in terms of cycles, breaking out of a cycle. These are true things to say that this, this is a cycle, even Dasani's own mother says that. But I think what's often missing from the conversation are the cycles of power that are also embedded in a family like Dasani's of resilience, of hanging on to the core family system that is at the heart of survival for a child like Dasani, that that is the system that she is most guarding and trying to protect as she navigates these other systems, all of which have names suggesting help, by the way, criminal justice, child protection, welfare. These are not systems that she finds to be helpful. They are systems that keep the family on edge. I will say, you know, New York has a more generous social safety net than most places. So we're looking at an experience that is atypical in that respect compared to other places. And yet it's still so hard. And yet it is still so flawed. So I think that the big takeaway in terms of of systems and, and their relationship to the family is that they are inextricably linked and their relationship is not something you can understand in a few words. Chanel often says, before you judge me, I want you to walk one mile in my shoes. And the walking that I did with them was to, for instance, wait for three hours in one line at welfare before we moved to a different floor. It was one time after I snuck into the intake center for homeless families, 12 hours later, 
Chanel and I were both asleep. Dasani actually took a picture of us. And <laughs> Chanel was so mad because, I mean, I think we both looked like we were snoring, but I mean, we were just passed out and everyone was in that place. I mean, you just, it's exhausting. The work of being poor is not even seen. It's very misunderstood if it is seen at all. It is a job in of itself to manage all of these systems. And one of the things I think that is really, really important to know about Dasani's family, and I think it is representative of other poor families, is that they don't want to be on welfare. They're not refusing to work. In fact, they're working every day. They're just not working in the way that mainstream American society regards as the formal labor market. It sometimes looks like bartering. Supreme will give a haircut in exchange for some food. That's work. This is a family that qualified for disability benefits and you refused to apply for them. That would have made a huge difference in terms of cash and income, but they didn't want to be labeled. And I think a lot of families are like that. So there are these assumptions that we have about the relationship between poor families and systems that I think are really misguided. It's also really expensive to be poor. There are a lot of fees and fines that are devastating if your bank account, if you have a bank account to start with, is tiny. A simple fee can be devastating. And then these processes, I mean, at one point too, the family comes back late to their room at Auburn and they're kicked out. Their belongings are taken from them and thrown in the dump. And that includes... Chanel's mother's ashes and they have to start over again. The humiliation seems unnecessary. There are so many moments of humility met with dignity and strength and power. This is what I kept seeing with this family. That moment when Joni's ashes are tossed in the dumpster, which is where formerly people were cremated back when Auburn was a hospital, Cumberland Hospital, which was, by the way, the very building where Joni had been born, that she would come to rest, if you could call it that, in that same building in such a degrading way, summed up so much for me about what this story tells us. It was such a moment of devastation, but also a reminder of the kind of contrast between how outsiders might regard a family like Dasani's, which is that, oh, they're living in a homeless shelter in my fancy neighborhood, Fort Greene. They are passing through. They are transient. They were randomly assigned to live in this place. I'm a homeowner. I'm part of revitalization. I'm here to stay. When in fact, Dasani and Chanel are more Brooklynite than almost anyone I've ever met. They belong in Fort Greene arguably more than anyone. They reach back four generations to this place. And I do think that if this book is about anything, it's about belonging. It's about who gets to belong to a place and who doesn't. And that place is for Green Brooklyn or New York City in a broader sense. But it's, it's also a metaphorical place, which more than 50 years after the civil rights movement, more than 50 years after LBJ's declared war on poverty, still feels different for a family like Dasani's. It's still a country with one of the highest child poverty rates in the developed world. And who gets to belong? Who should belong? This is 
I think one of the biggest lessons I learned writing this book, I started out thinking I was writing about a homeless girl. She's not homeless. You know what Dasani said to me recently? She said, home is the people, the people I hang out with, the people I grew up with. That, to be honest, is really home. Family who've had my back since day one. It doesn't have to be a roof over my head. In New York, I feel proud. I feel good. I feel accepted when I'm in New York. She said at Hershey, I feel like a stranger, like I don't really belong. It's about belonging. And she has that, whether she's in a shelter or she's walking down the street, this is her home. And she doesn't want to have to leave it in order to have a better life. And I think that that is the biggest kind of crucible that this story shows is what Dasani does when she's given the opportunity to leave geographically and also in other ways to go to a boarding school in this predominantly white town in rural Pennsylvania. And what does she do with that? And I think that that, that tension between honoring, loving, needing your family and also wanting to reach past it into some other kind of life is so important to understand. And it is so central to this story. When you introduce us to Dasani, it is very clear that she is an 11-year-old who's also parentified. She's taking care of her younger siblings. She's looking out for her mother. She is even missing school in some cases when they are moved to a shelter that's far, far away. And, uh, She's missing school to help her mother take care of the younger siblings. This is part of what causes her, I don't know, do we call them adjustment issues for the Hershey school? I mean, the folks at Hershey have incredibly good intentions and she's got loving house parents who really just want to do right by all of these kids. She is given resources that she doesn't have. I mean, we're talking about house parents who have to teach kids not to hide their food because it's okay. There's enough food. These kids have skill sets that most average children don't develop because they don't have to. They don't have to protect their food. They don't have to protect their siblings. They don't have to raise, in some cases, their siblings. But Dasani gets to the school. She has the grades to get in. She starts to adjust. But then ultimately, as her family is broken up by ACS, her little brother, Papa, runs away. And this sets off a chain of events because once those events start happening, as you said earlier, this cascade cannot be stopped. And the velocity, it's the velocity, I think, that really got my attention while I was reading. It's a freight train barreling down on this family. And Dasani's response is not necessarily what some people might hope for because we are, as Americans, we love the story of the American dream. We love stories of success, but we have very rigid definitions of the American dream. We have very rigid definitions of success. Yes. And she doesn't fit these models perfectly. I don't know who fits the model perfectly. I think some people do great at Hershey. There's so much to unpack in what you just said. I'm I'm so grateful for everything you just said. Let me just think about for a second what I want to respond to first. There's so much to say. The chapters on Hershey are a small portion of the broader story, but they're very important. What happens after Hershey, I think, is arguably more germane to understanding Dasani's path than anything else. But in order to see that, you first have to see what didn't work in order to see what might work. What didn't work for her was leaving her family behind in order to try to escape poverty. She'd like to be able to do both things at once and not see it as this binary choice. I don't think it's coincidental 
that the children who do best at Hershey are those who arrive young, definitely under the age of 10. If a child gets there at age seven, that child has a greater likelihood of making it all the way through college, of graduating, first of all, not getting kicked out, and then making it making it by the definition of success that I think a lot of Americans would recognize as the correct vision of success, which is you're no longer poor. Hershey has a saying that they want to be the opposite of a legacy school. This is the richest private school in America. It costs $95,000 per child per year, free ride. They want to be the opposite of a legacy school, which means if your children qualify, that means they haven't done their job. Their whole purpose is to lift you out of poverty. You have a much better chance of being lifted out of poverty if you get there early. And I think that's because the children who arrive younger form deeper bonds with this alternate family and this alternate universe, in a sense, that is Hershey. And people who arrive later, like Dasani, 13 and over, understand the costs. And they're much more bonded to their original families. And so they're having to navigate all of these competing needs, in a sense. I think what happened with Asani could be seen in two different ways. From the outsider's perspective, it's a disappointment. It's self-sabotage. She got to this great place. She took off. She thrived. But as soon as her family encountered troubles, she fell apart and ruined her future by getting kicked out and going back home. That is not how she would put it. And it's not even how I see it. I think what actually happened is that she got there and she was okay. She thrived. But when her family began to fall apart, it was understandably intolerable. And there was such a survivor's guilt that she was living through. She was in this beautiful place with all of her needs taken care of, watching her siblings going into foster care, a little bit like watching your house on fire and not being able to get past the police tape. That's how it felt. She was more than a hundred miles away. And that was intolerable to her. And it was intolerable to her because I think she is at her core, a person who has tremendous nobility that guides her value system. It is about being present for your family and giving to those you are loyal to. Sometimes in a way that's destructive, actually. It could look destructive, but it is never about Dasani first. It's never been that way. Going back to your observation about her parentified role, you know, this is a kid, one of the first things that stood out to me about Dasani was one day when we were in the park and she had a big loaf of bread and a jar of peanut butter and a jar of jelly. And she was making PBJs for her siblings. She handed them all out and then she took the ends of the loaf for herself. And I said, Dasani, you could have at least taken one good piece for yourself. And she's like, no, I'd rather they eat the food and enjoy it. I'm fine. And she was never calling attention to herself in this way. It's just the way she is. She's somebody who understands. And I think all of her siblings were this way. It's not about the individual. It's about the collective. And you not only survive, it's how you derive joy out of your life. There's a lot of joy in this book. There's a lot of humor and levity. And that's also another thing that I think people who read it are surprised by. There is a constant kind of current of hope running through it. And that just comes down to the love that this family has and it carries them forward. And I think that we lose sight of that when we sometimes look into other worlds, especially worlds that are so defined by horrible challenges. It has to be all about the suffering. No, There's tremendous joy and satisfaction that comes from being a part of this family unit that's way more powerful than any kind of abstract notion of what 
success, quote unquote, is going to bring you four years from now. I think that we do define success, we meaning mainstream America, in this futuristic sense. It's something you work towards. But until you're living the daily grind of being poor, until you know what it's like as a mother to schedule your children's lives around when your next food stamps are coming in, rather than a few blocks away in other parts of Fort Greene, birthday parties and ballet classes. Until you know what it's like to have to stretch a meal to the end of the week because you don't have enough, these pressures are so entirely moored in the present. It's not about the future. It's about surviving the present. And by the same token, when that money comes, you don't understand the power of it until you've been without it. And suddenly you can feel once again, like a person of means rather than a person who lacks. You really can't ever fully understand unless you are walking in Chanel's shoes. But I tried my best to to get as close to that understanding as I could. And I think that the more time I spent with him, the more clear it became that there were so many of these misguided assumptions that people have. How do we define success? Well, according to Dasani, you could have two different kinds of success. One is that you leave home, you leave family, you leave place, you leave everything that's familiar to you and you enter a different class, a different society, and you hang on to that new place. That did not feel to her like an authentic mm-hmm. experience. She would like to thrive without leaving home. She would like to make it work in her own neighborhood. She would like to start a business. She's now in community college pursuing a business administration degree, including her family in that business plan. She wants it both ways. And I think that's fair. How did reporting the story change you? I mean, I cannot think of a way it didn't change me. There are so many things to say about that. I am a mother and I think it will take a long time for me to be able to express what it was like to be there the day that the children were removed from Chanel and Supreme. What I would most like to say is that while I obviously am central in the telling of the story, this is not my story and it is not about me. And I want as much as possible to take a platform like this and make it about the family, not about me. However, it's a very fair question. And, you know, I think about something that Matt Desmond said, speaking to the same question, which is when people ask it and they ask it all the time, they don't really understand how intimate a question that is. Suffice it to say, it reordered my life. Also, it's important to know that if it was so defining for me and life-changing for me, just imagine what it was like to be them. So there's no comparing my experience to theirs. I just feel that it was the absolute privilege of my career to spend this time with them. Journalists, we often say our role is to understand. I mean, I, I've spent years saying that. I just want to understand. I, I wrote for years about Islam in a post-9-11 America, trying to get in as an outsider in various parts of the Muslim immigrant communities. And of course, that is our job is to try to understand, try to understand. But recently I looked up the, I'm a bit of a word geek, the etymology of the word understand. And it comes from an old English word, understanden, which means to stand in the midst of. It doesn't mean we've reached any kind of ultimate truth. It just means we've spent enough time 
in another world to get a sense of what that world is like. And I think if I did anything in these years of Dasani, it was to stand in the midst of her life. It was the greatest privilege of mine. It was an extraordinary journey. And I wrote the end of this book at least three times. And all three endings, by the way, are in the book. <laughs> it just kept not ending. <laughs> to this day, I could keep writing about Sunny. I mean, I find her Chanel Supreme, some of the most fascinating people I've ever encountered. But um, part of it is just that so many things keep happening. There's just so much to understand. And I think it finally had to end where it ended, but it does continue. Her life continues with big ups and big downs. And I just did my best to, to try to make sense of the ones I witnessed. This is as much a story of mothers and daughters, because we do meet Chanel's mom, Joni, who's complicated in her own right. We spend a lot of time with Chanel, who is pretty spectacular, and Dasani. Yeah. What did you learn from their relationships? I was reminded of my own relationship with my mother, who's from Chile. (laughs) It's very intense. Lots of ups and downs. I love her. Like, she's an extension of me. It felt very familiar in that respect. I think that Dasani does not distinguish herself from her mother. They are so intertwined. I think anybody with a family can relate to this family. There is so much that's universal about them. The power of the bond, the dysfunction at times, the rivalries, the peaks and valleys. I think that you cannot know Dasani without knowing Chanel or without knowing Joni and without knowing June, Joni's father, Dasani's great-grandfather, who's so central to the story in terms of even understanding Dasani's poverty. I went back several generations to try to piece together what happened to this family and was both riveted by and deeply saddened by what happened to her great-grandfather, June. I couldn't believe that his story had gone untold, even within the family. He had hidden who he was in some ways. And all I knew talking to Aunt Margot and Aunt, I call them Aunt Margot and Aunt Linda. That's how Desire first them. And by the way, her, her teacher, Miss Hester, I referred to as Miss Hester up until recently. Now we're on a first name basis. <laughs> These aunts, they grew up with Joni and their father, June, was very quiet about his early life, but he would talk about this distant war that he had fought in and they thought he was making it up. Well, like many other things, Chanel, Dasani, they were integral partners in the research of the book and they helped me file foils and dig deep into the family history. We wound up getting more than 14,000 records in order to piece together what happened to the family. And one of the most astonishing revelatory things we discovered was that June Sykes had fought in World War II when the United States military was still segregated. He'd gone with the 92nd Infantry, an all-Black division. The first of the combat regiments to land in Italy was his. He survived three major battles. He liberated two Italian towns, returned to Jim Crow America, having fought Nazis and fascists abroad, and was awarded three bronze service stars, as well as two medals, and then joined the Great Migration North and landed in Brooklyn. And, you know, the story really picks up there where he's 
he's trying to survive in the projects because he's relegated to renting given that Brooklyn was redlined. And even with GI Bill supports, a man like June was unable to get a mortgage. I looked at the data and it was astounding. You, you know, this is a person who was trained as a mechanic when more than 90% of his profession was white. Labor unions largely excluded black workers. You couldn't go to the suburbs. This is now the 50s. White families are leaving cities to go to the suburbs. There are restrictive covenants banning someone like June from getting a mortgage. The GI Bill backed mortgages for people like him. And yet in 1950, of 71,000 GI Bill backed mortgages in New York and New Jersey, less than 1% went to non-white veterans. He winds up in public housing and he winds up working more than 30 low-wage jobs, doing things like mopping floors and pouring concrete. You know, in white American families, a lot of the safety nets of those families are built from what happened in the 1950s when people were able to go to the suburbs, buy homes. So much of wealth comes from that first chapter. Just like wealth creates wealth generation after generation, poverty can keep people in poverty. And it's not out of choice. It's not out of choice. It is the same exact phenomenon that you are carried forward or kept behind by virtue of the things that happened before you that are not of your own doing. And you see the lacking safety net in this family, that, that there was no safety net. It was impossible to create the kind of safety net that enabled eventually white families to amass 10 times the median net worth of black families in America. In Dasani's family, it was about surviving. And by the time Joni came of age, we had a whole other set of social policies underway, government policies that resulted in industry pulling out of cities and huge amounts of crisis coming in in terms of unemployment. You've got the crack epidemic. And Joni is an incredible example of the kind of matriarch Dasani regards as her ultimate role model because she not only inherited this vastly unfair terrain, which was to live in a really poor neighborhood, to have been ousted from the projects, to have had to drop out of high school. She was a teen mom and then she fell to this addiction. But then she found her way out and she found her way out because she wanted to help her family. And I think that's really significant. Joni went, as Mark always puts it, you know, she just went cold turkey one day to the next, got off crack because she realized if she didn't, she wasn't going to be able to help raise three children who had been orphaned by AIDS in her family. And she needed to do that. So she wound up redeeming herself in a way that was very, very powerful for Dasani. And by the time Dasani was born, Joni was a reformed woman. She had found her way out of tragedy and into victory. And she tragically died in her 50s. But she's a really important part of the story, I think. We've talked a lot about systems. We've talked a lot about this incredible little girl, Dasani, and her very cool mama and, and her grandmother. But is there any hope that we can actually start to change systems? I think that the hope for systems rests with the people on the ground. I think that there are all kinds of small miracles that play out day after day in 
the way, for instance, that a welfare worker handles a family's case or a caseworker for ACS decides to refer a family like this one to different kinds of help rather than monitoring them, helping them. I think we don't do enough listening to the people who are on the front lines. And it's a lot easier to kind of take this 10,000 feet above the ground approach, but you've got to look at what's happening on the ground in order to see the ways in which these policies play out. The federal government spends 10 times as much money separating families, the vast majority of whom are brown or black, rather than keeping them together. If I was struck by one policy question that is raised by this book, it's why we spend so much more on that system rather than spending even a fraction of that money on keeping a family like this together and giving them the supports they needed. Dasani's siblings were removed from her parents and placed in a foster care system that wound up spending on average about $33,000 a month just on her family's children. And if you just took a fraction of that and put it towards helping the parents manage the things that so often lead to catastrophe in a family like this, and it's things like getting your food stamps reinstated or finding childcare or helping connect Supreme to work. Uh, he wanted to work and he was, he was constantly looking for work. He was overwhelmed. When families of means are in crisis, the response around those families is to offer material help. Someone's kid gets sick, the neighbor brings a casserole. That person's sister starts making phone calls, figuring out the medical situation, doing research. When poor families are in crisis and come under the watch of child protection, the response is very different. It's to add to the pressures. It's to say, you've now got to go to parenting classes. You now need therapy. No one would dare tell um, an upper middle class woman whose child has just been diagnosed with a horrible disease. Okay, before you take care of feeding the rest of your family or let us take care of feeding your family, you're going to go to therapy now. You need to go three times. We don't do that. There's an understanding that you have to take care of material needs. You have to help people stay whole before they can even attend to these other problems. Chanel Supreme didn't need parenting classes. They needed someone to work the phones. They needed someone to help fix the leaks in their home. Their children were removed in the beginning, largely because of the conditions of their home. The vast majority of these cases, ACS cases, involve allegations of neglect, 93% of them. Neglect is code for poverty. It is the failure to provide things like shelter, like clothes, like getting your kid to school on time. Abuse only cases in the year that this happened in Dasani's family constituted about 2% of the cases in New York City. And abuse is causing physical harm to your children. It's a very different category. And I think they tend to get lumped together and people think, well, these kids in foster care, they were removed from abusive homes. No, no. The vast, vast majority of them were taken from broken homes, homes broken by conditions related to poverty, where the parent wants that child and that child wants that parent. They want to stay intact. And so I think that those are the things that, that are lost in these bigger conversations. Is there anything you feel like we missed? There's one thing I'd love to say, which is, mm-hmm. Miwa, you alluded to this earlier, that we love the American dream, right? This is 
the story that America tells itself. Mm-hmm. That if you work hard enough, that if you are talented and driven enough, you make it. I think if there's one major takeaway of this book, it's to challenge that romantic escape from poverty narrative. We love those stories because everyone loves the story of the kid who beats the odds. I think that Invisible Child turns that story on its head. Sasani's story is just as worthy and it's just as gripping, but it's way more complicated than that. And I think it's far more representative, actually, because for every kid who makes it out, there are thousands more who are just as capable who don't. And I think we need to shift the conversation away from what was it that helped that one kid make it out to why are all these other kids not? And I think the answer to that question leads us to look at the barriers that a child like Dasani faces, which are far more powerful than any one child's potential. I think that a child like Dasani, her life is defined by these forces that are greater than her own abilities. It would take a lightning bolt of luck not to be trapped by the forces of racism, by the forces of government policy, family dysfunction, even physical barriers like geography or just physical realities like the way that noise interrupts sleep. And then as someone who is sleep deprived, you can't perform the same way on the standardized test or someone who hasn't had a proper breakfast. I think that that's the big takeaway is let's stop talking about the escape and let's Let's actually not escape. Let's stay in these neighborhoods and try to understand why it's so hard, why it's so hard to be there. And how do we begin to even explore the answers when we're always focused on departure rather than rather than immersion? Um, that sounds like an incredibly wise place to end this show. Andrea Elliott, thank you so much. The new book is Invisible Child, Poverty, Survival and Hope in an American City. And it's out now. Thank you so much for having me. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts.